Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to A Million Other Choices. I am, as always, your host, Kim. Today's story is terrible and frightening, and back in 2012, the family made it pretty clear that they didn't want their story told on the media, and I would totally respect that. However, Since then, the victim's family has come out a lot more publicly and has been working to help other victims of homicide and has found telling the story therapeutic. At the time, the family was concerned about re-victimization of the younger family members and seemed more concerned actually about the TV broadcast with actors portraying the victim's death, which is always done for ratings. And I completely get that. Since learning what it's like to be a victim, I do not watch cheesy reenactments. And since doing research, I know that they don't always get their facts straight. But this story is important and I think that it needs to be told. So I'm doing it as respectfully as I can. And hopefully Stephanie's family will understand and appreciate that my motives are pure and ethical. This is the murder of Stephanie Ringel. As the new year of 2008 rang in, Stephanie Rangel was about as normal of a 14-year-old living in York, Ontario as you could find. York was a former town of its own, but was incorporated by the City of Toronto exactly 10 years to the day before, on January 1st, 1998. Within York, on the east side, is a neighbourhood called Parkview Hills, between O'Connor Drive and St. Clair Avenue, and that Stephanie and her family lived on. Parkview is a rather affluent area with lush green areas and large English-style homes on large spacious lots. And it was here that Stephanie lived with her mom, Patricia, stepfather, James Hung, and her three brothers, Ian, who was 12, and half-brothers, Eric, four, and little Patrick, who was only two. Stephanie's mom, Patricia, and her father, Aldolfo Rango, originally from Venezuela, they separated when she was six, and then Patricia met James in the year 2000. Aldolfo was a court officer for the police service, and Patricia is a police officer herself, specializing in gang exiting and cyberbullying. James is also in law enforcement with the Emergency Task Force. A safe neighborhood with parents whose career revolves around safety and protection, you wouldn't think that anything could possibly go wrong. Patricia ran a bit of a tight ship with her background in cyberbullying, so she knew what could go wrong. So Stephanie was allowed social media, which at the time was likely just MySpace, um, but mom had to know all of her passwords and keystroke monitoring was a thing. Uh, But she was pretty much free to be a normal teenager, nose rings and all. Stephanie was a popular girl and dated a lot, even at 14. And when I say dated, I mean that a 14-year-old way you do by passing notes to each other, updating your Facebook status with song quotes, and breaking up after about two weeks because you've grown apart. 
but she also taught Sunday school at her church and wrote poetry and enjoyed photography. She made fairly smart choices when it came to boys, even if she was a bit boy crazy. At 12, she started getting attention from a 15-year-old football player at school named David Bagshaw. She was flattered and would meet him at a park and they would share a pizza with him at lunch. But when he called her house and left a message for her asking to step their relationship up to the next level with some oral sex, she decided that maybe he wasn't the right kind of boy to be hanging around with at 12 years old. So by the fall of 2007, she had just started ninth grade at Rosedale Heights and was settling into her last year of junior high before she would move on to high school. She easily made friends and was just being in every way a normal 14-year-old girl. She dyed her hair a multiple of colors, wore experimental outfits, and tried different makeup looks, always pulling it off effortlessly with an air of confidence about her that naturally just drew people to her. I'm not even slightly aware that behind her back, a storm was brewing and someone she had never met and never spoken to wanted her dead. So on New Year's Eve, as 2007 turned into 2008, she hung out with her parents singing karaoke with big hopes for the new year. The next day, she went over to a friend's house to hang out and came home before dinner, still wearing the black sweater that her mom had bought her for Christmas only the week before. In the kitchen at about 6.08 p.m., her brother Ian, who was 12 at the time, heard her cell phone ring and she answered it from a blocked number. She asked the caller, is that you? Stephanie had broken up with her boyfriend Steve Lopez two months before. The voice had sounded upset saying, meet me, meet me. Stephanie quickly hung up and threw on her boots and didn't bother to grab her coat, shouting to Ian over her shoulder, I'll be right back. 34-year-old accountant and neighborhood resident drove by Stephanie's house just minutes after she had run out of the house. She was laying on the sidewalk with blood pooling around her and she was moaning. Gavin slammed on the brakes of his car and shot out calling hold your stomach and grabbed a sheet he thankfully happened to have in his car and ran to her while dialing 911. The dispatcher told Gavin to keep pressure on the wound and Stephanie told him that it hurts. I wasn't going to play um, any of the 911 call because that would be revictimizing the family but in the call she says something that is kind of important so I am just going to play a little bit of it just a few seconds of it and, and hopefully it doesn't um, traumatize or revictimize anyone does she know who did this? Yeah, we did this yes. killer yes. who did it? who did it? Stephanie had struggled to make out the word bags and pointed up to the street went that way. Gavin frantically tried to keep Stephanie awake and with him telling her, you're okay, you're okay. The ambulance finally arrived and whisked Stephanie off to Toronto East General, where she would be pronounced dead when she arrived. Stephanie's mom, Patricia, and stepdad, James, had been out, out visiting James's mom when Ian called in a panic that there had been a stabbing in their neighborhood. Patricia tried Stephanie's cell phone, but she didn't get an answer. They arrived home to find yellow police tape blocking the street to their house. Patricia approached the officer standing guard around the tape and asked him what was going on, that she couldn't get a hold of her daughter. She said she's 14 with dark hair, to which the officer said the victim was older, in her 20s. 
but it didn't take away the uneasy feeling in Patricia's stomach that, that she'd often heard that Stephanie looked much older than her 14 years. The officer told her that the victim had been taken to Toronto East and offered to drive them there to see if the victim was in fact Stephanie. Unfortunately, she was. And when they arrived at the hospital, they were directed to a private room to process the shock and to be with Stephanie, who was already gone at this point, but they were given the respect to at least see her one last time. Detective Steve Ryan was on call that evening with his partner, Doug Sampson, and got a call just after 7 p.m. that a young woman had been stabbed and killed off of Northdale Boulevard. He got word that both Patricia and James were fellow officers. He told CBC the detective, right away my heart sank. Detective Ryan and Sampson learned from her parents and Ian that she had been home babysitting him and had fed him a grilled cheese sandwich when her cell phone rang and she had gone out to meet Steve outside the house. She had put on her boots but not her coat and was and it was one of the coldest nights of that winter so far. But talking to Gavin, who had held Stephanie's hand as she took her last breath and called for her mum, had managed to get her to say what he had heard as David Beggs. Later that night, after the hospital, Patricia drove down to the police station and wanted to meet with Stephen and Doug that night. She had remembered something that was probably very important. Back on October 20th, Stephanie had come to her with a story that freaked her mom out of bed, but she had thought that she had properly dealt with the issue. Stephanie told her that David Bagshaw, Stephanie's old boyfriend from two years before when she was only 12, had called her that night from the driveway, and when she came outside, he told her, Melissa wants me to stab you. Stephanie didn't really know who Melissa was, vaguely remembering that she had seen a girl with David around school who she assumed was his girlfriend. David threw his cell phone on the ground next to her and started to walk away, saying, When she calls, tell her I tried so she'll stop pestering me to kill you. When Patricia learned of this little interaction, being a police officer and pretty aware of the dangers of being a 14-year-old girl, she called this Melissa and gave her a piece of her mind. But Melissa had retorted, Stephanie had to stop spreading rumors about me. Stephanie had never even met Melissa, but she had told one of Melissa's cousins that she knew that David was bad news and had been flirting with her and some other girls behind Melissa's back. The information had obviously gotten back to Melissa, and she had turned it into something malicious instead of the heads up that it was intended as. Melissa wasn't consoled by this, and Patricia had ended the call threatening to get a restraining order if she tried to contact Stephanie again. Patricia had left the incident as teenage drama and had determined that the matter was settled. But after Stephanie had in fact been stabbed by the same boy that seemed to have been put up to it, she told investigators about it right away. Beggs and Bagshaw, under the circumstances Stephanie had been in, might have been the name that she was struggling to say. So at 2 a.m., Detective Ryan knocked on Melissa's parents' door and asked her to come down to the station with her mom. Okay, so he phones you, and he says, I have a knife with an 8-inch blade, and I'm going to Stephanie's house. What was your response to that? Okay, do whatever you want. And what did that mean? What did you take that to me when you said that? Okay. What did you mean when you said, okay, do whatever you want? I meant, if you want to kill her, kill her. Did you say that, those words? I said, do whatever you want. 
Well, that's not if you want to kill her, kill her. So he phones you and he says, I have an eight, eight inch blade knife and I'm going to set myself. And your response is, do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. What did he say to that? Did you think of calling 911 and reporting that there was a guy on a delivery to a young girl's house with a knife to kill him? No. Okay. While Melissa was giving this interview, which was kind of puzzling to the police with her lack of emotion, other officers arrived at David's house and promptly arrested him. They also secured search warrants for both David and Melissa's phones. One of the first messages they saw on Melissa's phone was from a friend of hers texting that she'd just heard that Stephanie had been killed and if she was worried that she was going to be a suspect. To which Melissa had texted back, Who knows that I wanted her dead because I only told you and David, so unless you told someone, only you should. But I never did anything and neither did David. We fucked tonight. LOL. 15-year-old Melissa Todorovic was a straight-A grade 8 student from East York Collegiate living in Scarborough with her parents Zoran and Rachel and her younger brother Nicholas. Zoran was a mechanic from Serbia originally and mum was a nurse. Her family was loving and normal and she was close with both of her parents, spending summers at their family cottage. But Melissa, with braces and glasses, was extremely insecure particularly about her looks and her weight. Always feeling having a boyfriend was a necessary thing to feel valid and worthy in the world. And although she had dated before a bit, she was very needy and clingy and prone to jealousy. So her teenage relationships didn't last more than a couple weeks at a time. She was one of those girls that insisted on going through cell phones and monitoring emails. And when there was a breakup, she would cut herself or make threats towards the boy's new girlfriend and posted all kinds of nasty things about her and the ex-boyfriend on Facebook or MySpace or whatever it was that they were using back in that day. And when she started seeing David Bagshaw, she was determined this time to keep him. David was a boy that Stephanie had been right to let go of and forget about for the most part. He wasn't a particularly faithful boyfriend, even by the age of 17, racking up a reputation as a serial cheater. His parents, Ronald and Cindy, had split up when he was young, and he was having some behavioral issues in school, with skipping and being aggressive towards other students and teachers. He'd been suspended a few times by the time he finished junior high, and had been arrested for assaulting his mom, Cindy, when he was only 14. David's parents didn't like Melissa. They found her controlling and needy. And Melissa's parents weren't fond of David, but they hadn't been able to convince them to stop seeing each other. Melissa kept tabs on David by installing spyware on his computer. And if that's not a red flag in a teenage dating relationship, then I don't know what is. And one time when she saw a comment from David to Stephanie on social media referring to her as pretty, That was it for Melissa. She was furious and became obsessed with Stephanie. She was also convinced that David was cheating on her with Stephanie. I will be right back after these brief messages. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. On May 22nd, 2007, she texted David, I'm going to fucking stab her if I want to. And she would come up with all kinds of ideas to ruin Stephanie, once telling David that she was considering getting her brother to rape her. David, for his part, would answer with, I don't want to kill her, lol. Like, I don't care if someone kills her, but I don't want to, lol. But he didn't really have an issue with listening to Melissa drone on and on about it. He just suggested they waited until after school, the school year was over so that he would have his license and they would have a getaway car. But Melissa threatened that she wasn't going to have sex with him until he did it. This back and forth went on for a few months, and by the summer, Melissa had pretty much decided for him that he was going to kill Stephanie or else she was going to break up with him. Over Messenger, they wrote all kinds of stuff about their plans. Melissa wanted him to shoot her, but he said, I need a bang-bang first. I want to bang you. Ugh, so romantic. Melissa said, I want her dead, David, lol. We've been through this even if it takes a week. By mid-December, she was still after him about it. You're getting blocked until you kill her. On New Year's Eve around 6.30, David had actually shown up at Stephanie's house and hung out in the back in the neighborhood's yard talking to Melissa on his cell phone. Stephanie's number was dialed from his phone a few times, but she never came outside. The next day, the day of the murder, Melissa was ignoring David. He texted her repeatedly, where are you? You're cheating. Why won't you answer me? Finally, around 3 p.m., she called him and told him that she had made plans to have sex with another boy. So texts and calls flew back and forth between them, and at 5.51 p.m., David called Melissa and told her he was on his way over to Stephanie's and had a knife on him. Melissa excitedly called David again at 6 o'clock, and they spoke for about four minutes until David ended the call with, I see her. Melissa waited for about 15 minutes and then tried to call Stephanie, and when she didn't answer, assumed she had gotten the result that she wanted. David had come out of the bushes where he was hiding when Stephanie had emerged from her house. He stabbed her repeatedly without any warning, one slashing her upper arm, one through her ribs, which went right through to the stomach, once in the left breast, which went through to her back, and another through the right lung and through the liver. She was then left to die in a snowbank outside of her house, crying for her mum while David took off to a friend's house, throwing the knife in his jacket, now soaked with blood in another snowbank in his friend's backyard. He called Melissa and took a cab to her house where they had sex, and then Melissa called her mum to pick her up a latte from Tim Hortons. Armed with the information that Melissa had been the one behind the murder, they interviewed her again, again with her mother in attendance. Killing Stephanie might have been more your idea than his idea. Is it, am I am I accurate? Yeah. Okay. I said I want her dead, and I told him that I might break up with him. She did not ask for her lawyer and instead told the detectives that she wanted Stephanie dead because she thought she had spread a rumor that she had been giving oral sex to random boys. Her mother sat in stunned silence at her admission. David Bagshaw pleaded guilty. 
He cried pretty much through all of his hearings and apologized to the family for the pain that he had caused and called his crime disgusting and that he would never forgive himself. Justice Ian Nordheimer said that although he was being sentenced as an adult, he was more reluctant of the two partners in this evil endeavor. He was given a life sentence with parole ineligibility for 10 years. Melissa Torovic decided to plead not guilty to first-degree murder and went to trial, defended by Marshall Sack, a rather eccentric lawyer prone to floral and poetic speeches. He claimed that Melissa hadn't really meant that David should kill Stephanie and actually do it, and she certainly wasn't nearly as responsible as he was because she wasn't there when it happened and didn't do any of the stabbing herself, despite 30,000 pages, pages of text transcripts between the two of them about the murder plans. A psychiatrist couldn't officially diagnose her with borderline personality disorder because she was under 18, but said she showed the characteristics of it. The jury deliberated for about two and a half days and then found her guilty of first-degree murder. But the judge had to decide if she should be sentenced as a youth or an adult. In the end, he decided that a youth sentence wouldn't be the best to protect the community from her because she had untreated and unaddressed issues. Despite having loving and hardworking parents, she had done something he called malevolent and shocking. Ian Rangel, who was now 13, gave a heartfelt victim impact statement saying, Why didn't I look out and see her dying in the snow? I could have told her I loved her and that everything was going to be fine if she'd just hold on a little while longer. Patricia said, I have wanted so many times not to be alive. I have an incomprehensible need to feel her pain, but we have other children and other responsibilities, so I go on. I want inner peace, which is believed to come from forgiveness, but I am unable to forgive someone who has shown no remorse. Knowing that I did not do enough to protect Stephanie from these monsters eats at my sanity every waking moment. Stephanie's grandmother, Mary Fraser, said of Melissa, She has managed somehow to reach the age of 17 without the slightest regard for the intrinsic value of human life. Her coldness is frightening, more so because she represents a growing number in the insular world of today's youth who learn quickly from the cradle that the young are seldom required to suffer the consequences of their actions. Melissa read from her prepared statement, staring at her paper and avoiding eye contact with anyone, saying, Every day I wish I could go back in time and change everything I said and have Stephanie be alive for her family again. I want you to know I take full responsibility for my part. But she hadn't shown a lot of emotion or remorse during the entire three weeks of the trial, so Justice Nordheimer didn't really buy it. She was also sentenced as an adult, but for the some reason given only seven years of parole and eligibility, even though he said that she was a potential threat to society and that the puppet master is not less blameworthy than the puppet. Indeed, I would suggest that the master is more culpable since he or she puts the wheels in motion and then stands back under a facade of disassociation while the scheme that they have created unfolds. The concept that teenage angst becomes the driving force for murder leaves us both shocked and incredulous. About a year later, when Melissa turned 18, there was a hearing in front of the Ontario Superior Court. Again, it was Justice Nordheimer presiding about whether or not it was time for Melissa to be moved from the Roy MacArthur Youth Centre in Brampton, Ontario, to the Grand Valley Institution, which is a medium-security adult penitentiary. The Crown Attorney Robin Flumerfeld said, She is the person she was then. What we're left with is an untreated Melissa Tordovic, 
whose outward appearance and conduct bears a striking resemblance to the person who orchestrated Stephanie Rengel's murder. Melissa had refused treatment while in the youth center and didn't hold much hope that she would make improvements in an adult center either, but it was where she truly deserved to be. Melissa's face flushed with rage as the judge read his decision that she would be moved to an adult facility. After the trial, Patricia Rangel, Stephanie's mom, told Toronto Life she still hadn't been able to return to work on the force. The hardest time to lose a kid is at the age 14. You're holding the reins back and they've always been pushing and you have to say no a lot. You go from being the adored parent to them wanting to hang out more with their friends. Adolfo Rangel said, I never thought I would lose a child like this. She was smart. She named the killer. She was smart till the day she died. Stephanie's bedroom has not been touched since the last time she slept in her room. Her door remains closed and their cleaning lady was asked never to clean in there. There is still strands of her hair in her hairbrush on her dresser and there are marks in the door of her height as she grew, forever left at 14. Patricia's mom said of her room, it's the last thing I can hold on to. I don't go in very often because I want to savor it. On April 6, 2011, a now 21-year-old David Bagshaw was charged with attempted murder of another inmate at Millhaven Institute. He was in a group of inmates, all with weapons of sorts, who attacked a 34-year-old prisoner in the gym. In that incident, guards shot killed 29-year-old Jordan Trudeau. Bagshaw was also shot in all of the melee, but was treated for superficial wounds. In 2013, he became sexually involved with a staff member at the prison. In 2012, NBC was going to do an episode of Teens Who Kill about Stephanie's case, and Patricia came out publicly asking them not to do it. We are trying to minimize the amount of public attention to this story, hence asking NBC to cancel their publication to protect our children from any more revictimization. My feelings are that it cheapens her life and all she suffered for ratings and profit. The reenactment of her death, should any of her siblings see it now or in reruns, would be more than upsetting. Um, she wrote in a blog post of hers, I implore each and every one of you to pass the word around so that NBC is unable to find anyone else willing to participate, leaving the network no choice but to cancel. Um, the irony is that a bunch of news outlets picked up the story, and when they relayed the story of Patricia's denouncement of the segment, they invariably retold the details of Stephanie's murder in the same articles. Uh, Patricia doesn't want the media attention on the story. And by the way, here's what happened. And she doesn't want attention drawn to it. So Melissa managed to get day parole in 2018. And a now 27-year-old Melissa immediately started dating a guy on parole. And then also the guy's friend, who was also on parole. And then started a nice little love triangle with her starting to manipulate them with sex and trying to get them to fight each other. This was obviously against her parole conditions, so her day parole was revoked after less than six months. The parole board saying, you in attended programming and counseling and spoke of your relationships and emotions without disclosing the relationship you were in. This demonstrates not only a flagrant violation of your special conditions, but also suggests that you were not truly motivated to implement the skills that you've learned over the years through the plethora of programming and counseling that you've attended. In January 2020, she appealed that decision and was told, the reality is that you have been given every opportunity to improve your understanding of your risk and needs, to develop effective and meaningful strategies to recognize and manage your risks, and to prepare yourself for a graduated return to society. 
Your own choices resulted in this, your suspension of day parole. Your own decisions to be evasive and manipulative reciprocated the revocation of your parole. The board was not unreasonable in determining that by engaging in romantic relationships with two friends, by psychologically manipulating one against the other, and by consciously choosing not to report these relationships to your parole officer, you had become re-engaged in your offense cycle. In 2021, David Bagshaw came up for full parole, now at the Bath Institute. He was 31 at the time. He told the board at the hearing, I'm disgusted at myself for what I did. I hate myself for what I did. I think about it every day. Thinking about what I did makes me think about what I took away from someone, what I took away from their family. It disgusts me. When asked why he was now asking for parole, he said of what his corrections officer said of him, it's hard to say after listening to what she had to say on it. To be honest, I don't know if I warrant it. I'm honestly ready to give it a try. But like I said in the beginning, I don't know if I warrant a release, but I want to show that I'm ready to do something positive with my life. His bid for parole was denied. Patricia and James Hung began working with victim services at Sarnia Lampton to hold a workshop for police and social service workers to better help victims of homicide called Aftermath of Murder. Stefan is just a, or was a, um, like a true humanitarian. Well, she's very outgoing and, and very confident. In my mind, it would have been easier to handle if there had been a diagnosed mental illness or if there had been sexual abuse in, in one of their backgrounds. Maybe because there was no real reason for it and it scares me that someone could, could be that disturbed. The hardest is not being there when she died and not saying goodbye. How much it must have hurt, physically, how much it must have hurt her. She says, quote, who could ever fathom someone would want to murder your child? It's as unfathomable now as it was unfathomable the day of Stephanie's murder. Uh, this was the first wa workshop of its kind. Uh, we as police officers were always very kind to our victims, but perhaps we didn't pick up on the little things that matter when you're a victim. It was hard to be grateful when I would give up anything to have Stephanie back. And she hopes that the public realizes that anyone can be a victim. And for those who have been, support is important. Don't wait to get help and don't be embarrassed to ask for help. And that, Patricia, is why I wanted to tell Stephanie's story, which I hope that I did being as respectful and truthful as I could and not leave anyone frightened of becoming a victim, but more of an awareness that this can happen to anyone from any background, any financial station in life, and that bad people are out there. Uh, there is a rumor going around on social media that the average person will walk past 36 murderers in their lifetime. Now, some less gullible have said that it's more like 16, but Sue Coletta, a crime writer in the U.S., actually did the statistical analysis on it. Um, granted, she only looked at serial killers. With an average statistical likelihood of being killed by one in each state of around 4 in every 100,000, with Alaska the highest at 7 out of one every 100,000. But there are too many factors. In reality, we walk by about four or five people every day that are capable of murder, but actual murderers are too hard to quantify uh, because some people walk by a lot of people and others don't. So why am I telling you all this? I don't know, because statistics are fun for me and I like that stuff. Anywho, I'll be back again next week with another case of a victim who never deserved to, to be a victim. As always, thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm.